I would ask that you guys would open your Bibles to John 15. John 15. Title this morning's message, Abide in Me. That will make sense in just a moment. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Verse 1, I am the true vine and my father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I've spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, and you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away like a branch and withers, and the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another, as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what the master is doing, but I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name He may give it to you. These things I command you so that you will love one another. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we we thank you for this time. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus, your son, our Lord, our Savior. Almighty God, we ask that you would be at work in our midst, Lord. We, We ask that these words of Jesus would be received today corporately. And personally, God, that we wouldn't just see these as words spoken at some time in history, but your holy word to us today. And I pray, Lord, that we would receive them as such. But not only, Lord, let us be hearers, Lord, but I pray that we would be doers of your word. I pray, in other words, that we would respond in faith by the power and ministry of your Holy Spirit to all the words that Christ has spoken to us, Lord. We realize that you have authority over us, God. It is not us that dictates the direction of our lives, Lord, but it's you, our King. So give us faith, give us trust, Lord. Empower us to respond. Speak to us now. Just want to pray for strength for this church, Lord, for this season. Thank you for the good work that you are doing in this church. Thank you for the good work that you're doing in Britt and the Merrick family. Thank you for the good work that you are doing on the coastlands. Thank you for the good work you're doing in the globe. Thank you for the good work you've done in eternity. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. 
All right, let's begin with a question. If, if I were to ask you to sum up all of, li- uh, all of Jesus' life and ministry in one word, what would that word be? What word would you choose? Go ahead. Let's, you're, you're, you're far more vocal than for service. Hey. Okay, well, someone already blurted out that was at uh, the first service, but hopefully you didn't hear him. Dallas Willard, uh, who's an author who has influenced my idea of really what it means to be formed and shaped as a believer, was asked this really important question. And the answer that he gave was an answer that it was sort of the last word I would have ever imagined until up, up until recently. And the word that he gave was this, relaxed. You can sum up Jesus' life and ministry in one word, what would it be? Relaxed. Now, I, I initially objected to that. And you may too. But then I began to think through things. Like Jesus begins the greatest mission, rescue mission that the world has ever known by being born as a baby, spending 30 years in obscurity, performing his first public miracle, turning water into wine. Jesus, the gospels tell us, uh, welcomed interruptions from kids. When waves were crashing into the boat, he was asleep. When one of his best friends was dying, he waits, purposely does not rush to his side, but waits until he dies so that when he shows up, he can reveal the resurrection power. When ministry was on fire and hopping, he turns to his disciples and he says, hey, let's get away for a while. Let's get away. The gospels tell us that he went quietly before his condemners and at his darkest moment on the cross, when he could have called down legions of angels to get him out of that situation. Instead, he prays to the Father, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Relaxed. Last year, I took some time away, personally, uh, from ministry in Stockton, and I began to look at my own life and my own ministry and the, and the way that I function and the way that I interact with God and the way I interact with people and even the way I interact with my, myself. And, and really... Contrary to Jesus' posture, I, I saw a lot of franticness, and I saw a lot of rushing, and I, lo- I saw a lot of stress, and I saw a lot of toiling. I caught myself speeding to get to places when I really wasn't in a hurry. Uh, I began to see some of my stress-induced tics from childhood starting to reappear. As a, as a child, I used to pull out my eyebrows unconsciously. And so people now, as an adult, are they saying like, bro, do you like tweeze? Do you like groom your eyebrows? I'm like, no, I have five children and I'm a little bit stressed right now, but thanks for asking. <laughs> so I began to see these, these stresses and these sort, this angst sort of emerging in, in my life, quite different than what we see in the life and ministry of Jesus and things that look very different than what the, the Bible promises to those who entrust themselves into God's care, who find themselves within the grip of God's grace And it really forced me to think through some questions like this. Where is my confidence? Where is my hope? Who have I been living for? Where have I been looking for life and peace and provision and rest for my soul? And really what I discovered was that the question uh, beneath the questions, the question that I needed to wrestle with was this. Where am I abiding Where have I been abiding? Jesus says in verse 1, 
I am the true vine. Now, this has some theological significance that we're going to get to in just a moment. But almost immediately, we have a reflection to consider. If Jesus is the true vine, which he claims to be, then what are the untrue vines in my life? What are the untrue vines in your life? If Jesus is the true vine, then that means that there's always going to be untrue vines that are trying to convince us that there is another route to life, that there's another route to joy, that there's another route to fulfillment. Untrue vines that in the long run leave us brittle and hurt and frustrated, tired and fruitless. One of the most important values instilled in me from the reality family, from this church part of my spiritual heritage that I now today want to re-gift to you, the church, is that ministry flows from intimacy. That ministry for God flows from intimacy with God. That before Jesus calls us to do anything for him, Jesus calls us to be with him. That what I do for God ought to flow out of being rooted in joyful and intimate and loving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Or as Jesus seems to be saying here in John 15, that fruitfulness is the byproduct of abiding. Not our ingenuity, not our grit, not our giftedness, not our experience, no amount of momentum, but according to Jesus, by abiding. In fact, I love how explicitly clear Jesus makes it. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Just like settle it. All right, let's pray. Amen. (laughs) Probably that easy, guys, honestly. But you see, we as humans, we are bent towards self-reliance, aren't we? We're conditioned for self-reliance. We are taught from a very early age that we need to dig deep. We need to muster strength. We need to give it all we've got. But what we need to remember is that according to the Bible, this is not the way of the kingdom. This is not the way of the vine. And truth is, I had forgotten this. And I began to maybe like you right now, feel that, that disconnect. The disconnection from that, the vital life of the vine. I began to feel the emptiness and the anxiety and the stress of trying to do stuff for Jesus apart from Jesus. But what really struck me was was a moment where I realized that I wasn't just dealing with stress, but I was participating in wickedness. Listen to the words of Oswald Chambers. We actually slander and dishonor God by our very eagerness to serve him without knowing him. You see, I wasn't just running on empty. My life and my ministry was teetering the line of slanderous. Slandering the very God that I was endeavoring to make much of. I needed to rediscover what it means to abide in Jesus. What it means to be with him. What it means to draw life and meaning and purpose and strength 
and identity and rest from Jesus. So during my time away, uh, the Lord used this portion of scripture to really realign my heart and to bring a lot of healing within. And during that process, something really simple yet profound struck me. In fact, it's so simple that I think maybe some of us will overlook this. But it, it was this. It was that the most important thing that I will ever do with my life is abide with Jesus. See? <laughs> so simple. And yet so easy to overlook. But the most important thing that I will ever do with my life is abide with Jesus. That is what's going to matter in eternity. Not how many sermons I've preached, not how many people I've talked to, not my accolades, not some sort of list of accomplishments. What is going to matter is whether or not I was abiding in Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at that abiding today. But before we dive into it, just a little bit of context. This portion of John is what is known as the farewell discourse. On the night before the crucifixion, Jesus has some of the most significant conversations recorded in Scripture with his disciples In John 14, it tells us that Jesus and his disciples rose from the Last Supper and they set out. And somewhere along the path, Jesus introduces this allegory of the vine. Now, we don't know what they see that brings the vine to mind. Some believe that perhaps they passed by an actual vine and this is where it came out. But actually, some commentators believe that Jesus intentionally walked them past the temple where it was believed that there was actually vines etched into the stone in the side of the temple. We don't know exactly where the allegory came from, but what we do know is is that here, along the path, he turns to his disciples and he introduces this timeless call. Abide in me and I in you. So what does it mean to abide in Jesus? Well, first, abide in me is a welcome home. Abide in me is a welcome home. When Jesus says, abide in me, he is inviting us to find our home through union with Jesus. Listen to the way that Eugene Peterson translates this passage. Live in me. Make your home in me just as I do in you. Now, there's a scene from the movie Hook which was one of my favorite movies growing up. And Captain Hook and his pirates attempt to make Neverland feel more like home for young Jack and Maggie who have been kidnapped from their home. And what we begin to see throughout the movie is that Jack is actually beginning to like it a little bit better in Neverland. Hook, unlike his father, pays attention. There's almost this like prophetic moment. The movie was released in 1991. But Jack's dad spends more time on his cell phone than he does with his children. And so Jack's beginning to like it a lot more in Neverland because Hook pays attention. Hook cares about his life. Hook engages with him and dialogues with him and even sets up a baseball game for him. And so as they're assembled, they've assembled this game, the crowd is cheering, and we look off into the, to the, the stands and we see some of these pirates with these signs and they're singing, Run home, Jack. Run home, Jack. And there's this moment where the the scene sort of pauses and the camera zooms in on Jack and he begins to repeat to himself quietly, run home, Jack. 
run home, Jack. And there's this moment where you, you, can, you can tell that he is remembering. He's remembering home. He's remembering that where he is is not right, that he doesn't belong there. But just in time, just in time, the men switch the signs around and begin to sing, home run, Jack, home run, Jack. And he steps back up to the plate and he carries on. See, we all have these moments throughout our lives that pop up into our experience crying to us as well, run home. You need to run home. And it causes us to pause and ask the question like, wait, what? What is that? What is this? But almost as fast as it comes into our experience, it's quickly drowned out by something else. Something else, some other voice pops up to distract us so that we can carry on with our busyness. There are points in our lives where we all, in some way or another, experience that feeling that we too are out of place, that something is disconnected, that something vital has been disconnected. But because we often don't discern what it is, we often don't realize how to respond to it. We don't discern what that angst, what that pit in our stomach is there for and what it is and what it's accomplishing. And because we can't really discern what it is, we don't really know how to respond to it. It's why at many times we attempt to escape our reality. In fact, I was thinking about it this morning. I wonder how much of our lives are just spent trying to escape our reality. Trying to just leave where we are. Whether it's through unconventional means like substance abuse, or hooking up, or something along those lines. Or maybe it's through the the conventional means that maybe no one would bat an eye at, like work, and entertainment, and adventure, or even sleep. But consider with me, what what if we stopped drowning it out? What if we listened? What if we honored that angst long enough to hear what it was saying. An author named G.K. Chesterton tells of this sort of watershed moment when he realized that he didn't fit into the world. And he stopped disregarding it. He says, all the optimism of this age had been false and disheartening for this reason. That it had always been trying to prove that we fit into this world. The modern philosopher had told me again and again that I was in the right place, and yet I still felt depressed. And yet I still felt out of place. But then there's this moment where he hears of Jesus, and he says this, but then I heard that I was in the wrong place. And my soul began to sing for joy like a bird in spring, because I knew, then I knew, and listen to these words, then I knew why I always felt homesick at home. That even where I was supposed to feel most settled and most safe and most secure, I still felt disconnected. I still felt homesick. Donald Bloch once said this, Our greatest affliction is not anxiety or even guilt, but rather homesickness, a nostalgia or yearning to be home with God. Our anxieties, our aches, 
the pains that we experience, the disappointments, the frustrations that we all experience. They are all reminders that we are a people who long to be in our true home with God. And I guess what I'm trying to say is that we, we shouldn't ignore them. We shouldn't disregard those longings because they are telling us something. And God will often use those longings, in fact, by his grace, to bring us home when we've strayed. I'm sure we're all familiar with the parable of the prodigal son found in Luke 15. It's a parable that, that, God, that Jesus tells to illustrate God's interaction with us. And the parable goes that there's a man who has two sons and the youngest of the sons comes to his father and essentially says, you're as good as dead to me and I want my inheritance. And so he takes his inheritance, he runs off to a distant land, spends it on reckless living and just as he runs out of money, there's a severe famine in the land. He spirals out of control and it hits this low point, especially for a Jewish boy as he's feeding pigs. He's hit rock bottom. He is as low as low can get. And the son reaches this point where he experiences this homesickness that I'm referring to. In fact, listen to the words Luke 15. But when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and I will say to him, father, I've sinned against heaven And before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to his father, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found and they began to celebrate. How many of us are like this son? We, we, We begin to develop the script in our mind, what we're going to tell God when we come back to grovel. I'm not worthy to be called your son. I'm not worthy to be called your daughter. You don't know where I've been, God. Just take me back, maybe as a servant. Surely not a son. Surely not a daughter. That's too much to ask. I'll sit in the back. I won't won't rock the boat. I won't be a nuisance, but I just long to be in your home. And God says, nonsense. Nonsense. You're my son. You're my daughter. The parable of the prodigal son gives us a very different picture of God than I think some of us are inclined to imagine. I think for some of us, God is a grumpy, bothered, short-tempered God who is best to leave alone. I think for some of us, God is a benevolent grandfather who sends gifts in the mail once in a while, but really has no interest in spending time with us. But the scriptures show us a very different God, don't they? This is a God who feels deeply for us. This is a God who runs to us. This is a God who, as you can imagine from this scene in the the parable, who casts off all restraint in 
showing affection toward us. He wraps his arms around us. He kisses us on the neck. He gives us his very best. He celebrates our return home. In fact, the scriptures say that all of heaven breaks out in song when one sinner repents and returns. Heaven is anxiously waiting in the balance for each sinner to return and repent. And as they do, all of heaven breaks out in song. So different than the way we imagine our return looks like. You again. You again. How many times have I warned you? How many times have I told you? I guess come in. When Jesus says abide in me, to call home. Secondly, abide in me is an invitation into intimacy. When Jesus calls us home to abide in him, it is not as guests. Not just simply as guests in the house of God, it's deeper than that. He's calling us into loving intimacy with him. Look with me in verse nine. As the father has loved me, So have I loved you, abide in my love. In other words, with the love that the Father, God the Father has for God the Son, I am now sharing with you, abide in that love. Remain in that love. What Jesus is simply saying is that an abiding relationship with Jesus is a loving relationship. Where Jesus shares the unending, eternal love of the triune God with little old us. Where the love of heaven, the love of eternity, according to Romans, is poured out into our heart through the Holy Spirit. The reservoirs of God's love are dumped into our lives through Jesus Christ. Jürgen Maltman described the fellowship of the Trinity as an eternal love affair. Jean-Thomas Free describes the Trinity as intimacy that is complete. Famously, C.S. Lewis described the triunity of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit as a divine dance, one that has been in motion from eternity. But here in John 5, the dynamic of the dance, and I don't know how else to describe this, the dynamic of the dance seems to break open. Not in a disunifying way, but in a welcoming way. So picture it here with me that Jesus, as Jesus extends this invitation to us to abide, it's as if the tight-knit circle opens up and a hand extends to us. We are like the wallflowers of humanity sitting on, up against the wall and the dance opens up and a hand of Christ extends to us and we're standing there thinking like, Me? And Jesus says, yeah, will you take this dance? I I choose you. And he invites us into the blessed life and blessed love of the Trinity. Abide in me is God's passionate and intentional invitation into intimate relationship. But here's the thing. Jesus is saying, abide in this love. Which means that there's a call here to respond In fact, C.S. Lewis puts it this way. Each one of us has got to enter and take his place in that dance. There's no other way 
to the happiness for which we were made. We are roaming our world. We are out exploring our lives to the greatest, furthest reaches, trying to find that happiness. In fact, that longing for happiness is what drives our lives. And yet it's clear that there's no other way to the happiness for which we were made unless we enter that dance. And as we respond in faith and we join that dance, what Jesus says here is that our status is forever changed. Look with me in verse 15. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But, listen to the scandal of these words, but I call you friends. For all that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Jesus calls us friends. Uh, We're approaching wedding season right now. And so, you know, when a newlywed or newly married couple dances their first dance, uh, it's always a little bit awkward, you know? You know, they had planned to get the dance lessons. But then like the venue changes and they find out that there's going to be rain and there's a little bit of drama with the mother-in-law and those, those dance lessons get sort of put on the back burner. So it's always a little bit of an awkward situation for everyone involved. And, you know, there's that moment where they're whispering to each other. And I'm kind of a need to know, so I'm always wondering, what are they saying? You ever wonder what they're saying? Well, it's none of your business. <laughs> it's their business. It becomes, in fact... I think that that is the moment in the wedding where it is so explicitly clear we are, there, we are there for them. We are here to support them. It is not about us. Like we are just backdrops in this moment that they are sharing together. But not so with Jesus. Jesus is saying, I'm going to bring you in so close that you're going to hear the secrets of the Trinity. I'm going to bring you in so close that you will hear the whispers of the Father. I'm going to tell you everything I know. I'm going to bring you in on the best thing going on in the universe. And it's here within intimate abiding relationship that we hear his life-giving voice. It's here within abiding relationship through Jesus Christ that we develop and we grow in our awareness of, of God's love for us. It's here within abiding relationship that we are further rooted in our identity as chosen and beloved children of God. It's here that we receive the the life-giving nectar of the vine so that we can be uh, fruitful disciples of Jesus. It's here that we receive motivation and it's here that we receive the Holy Spirit power for effective ministry. It's here and nowhere else. It's by being connected through vital connection in Jesus Christ. Now think about the implications of this. When Jesus says, I no longer relate to you as servants, but friends. There's a switch happening. See, I think for some of us, we come into this place today thinking the opposite. I was a friend of God at one time. But surely he will receive me back now 
on different terms. I've failed too many times. I've grown too distant. It's just been too, it's just been too much. There's too much stuff between us now. And yet Jesus actually does the opposite. He reverses this. No longer do I relate to you as servants, but friends. Which means when we approach Jesus, we don't approach him as employees. We don't approach Jesus as if we are trying to earn from him or try to prove. We're not sweating it out, trying to earn our freedom. We don't cower as our master walks by. We don't wear the chains of ministry. We don't wear the chains of religion. We don't wear the chains of obedience or even church going. Jesus calls us friends. He calls us into friendship. He calls us into intimacy. I think for so many of us, we forget that Jesus desires our friendship. I wonder what we think when we think about the question, what does Jesus want from my life? It's probably a long list of things that I need to do for God. And oh, just, I can't forget this. And I can't forget that. Just go down the list and go down the list. And Jesus says, I want your friendship. I desire your friendship. In fact, I went to the cross for your friendship. Abide in me is an invitation into intimacy. And third, abide in me is a call to remain. The life of the Christian is not marked simply by coming to Jesus by faith, but abiding in Jesus by faith. Listen to the words of Andrew Murray. The first coming gave but single drops to taste. It is only the abiding that can really satisfy the thirsty soul and enable you to drink of the rivers of pleasure that are at his right hand. The truth is, There's nothing that moved you to come that does not plead with even greater force, abide in him. You did well to come. You do better to abide. You did well to come. But you do better to abide. Look at me in verse 3. Jesus says, already you're clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. See, the assumption is that this is being heard by those who have already been cleansed from their sin and renewed through faith in hearing the gospel message. These are those who have already heard the message. Now, don't get me wrong. This is also an invitation for those who have not responded to Jesus. But the assumption is that these are those who have already responded to Jesus that are hearing these words. Already you're clean. The question I hear a lot from believers is what's next? Or some variation of that question. What's next for my life? What's this like next season? What's next for our church? What's next for my family? What's next for my ministry? What's next? Always on to the next. I think this is where a lot of people find themselves, and maybe you find yourself here today. Okay, I, I've come to Jesus by faith. I responded. I got baptized. I signed up to serve. I've been kind of like doing the thing. I'm a Christian now, bona fide Christian. What's next? Immediately, Jesus says the next verse, abide in me. That's what's next. Yeah, but like, what's next? Abide in me. 
okay, I get what you're doing here, Jesus. But like, get real practical. Like, what is next? Abide in me. But after that, abide in me. Abide in me. (laughs) Today and tomorrow and next month and next year, into eternity, abide in Christ. Abiding is not just the entry into the Christian journey. It is the Christian journey. This is the stuff. We're waiting to graduate to the real stuff. Show me the real stuff, Jesus says. Here's the real stuff. This is the real stuff. But it never seems to be enough, does it? I wonder how many of us fail to make forward progress in our spiritual life and in our Christianity because we have equated growth with doing more stuff. That I'm growing in Christ if I'm growing in more responsibility. I'm growing in Christ if the list of things that I do for Jesus is growing. But this is the mindset that I think that Jesus is actually trying to remove us from. In fact, this is a very post-industrial revolution sort of mindset. And here it is, that my value is based on my production. That who I am, my dignity, my value, my place in the house of God is based on what I do. And if I, like the machinery, breaks down or is just not as successful as the next new thing that comes around, then I'm discarded. I'm put off. I'm, I'm some dusty piece of machinery in a back storage unit. Listen to the words of Thomas Merton. People blinded by their desire for ceaseless motion for a constant sense of achievement, famished with a crude hunger for results, for visible and tangible success, they work themselves into a state in which they cannot believe that they are pleasing God unless they are busy with a dozen jobs at the same time. That God must not be pleased with me unless I'm doing all of these things for God. That's why we don't rest. That's why we feel guilt when we put our work down. That's why for so many of us, we probably break the law of the Sabbath. That's probably why for so many of us, we don't understand the concept of sabbatical and Sabbath rest. Because we think that God can't be pleased with us unless we keep up the frantic motion of this world. In our hyper-mobile, go, 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 always moving culture, we are weary We are worn out. We are exhausted. We are overstimulated people. We are just waiting for the rat race to end. We're just like waiting for that moment where we can stop when the world just says, you know what, you've done a good job. You should rest a while. It's never coming. It's always more. It's always more. And now the pace of the world has poured over into the church. It affects our rhythms. It affects the way that we minister to one another. It affects the way that we minister to our city. Go, go, go. Always do. Always do. Yet Jesus' refreshing words come to us and simply say, stay put. 
This is the word that, God, that Jesus uses here, abide, which means to remain. Continue to be present. To tarry, to linger in someone's presence, to refuse to depart, to stay put. Wow. What does Jesus want from my life? Stay put. It's as if Jesus is looking at all of our franticness and all of our busyness and all of our toil and saying, wait, you thought that's what I wanted for you? You thought that that's what I called you to? No, that's on you. That's, not, that's your gig, that's not my gig. Jesus says, I'll take care of producing fruit. Jesus says, I'll take care of your growth. Jesus says, I'll take care of your ministry. Reality Carp, Jesus says, I'll take care of your church. You take care to remain. You take care to abide. We thought that the Christian narrative is just go, 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 do, 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 run, 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 and then die. Jesus is like, whoa. Let's just start by taking off your coat. I always remember my grandmother saying that when we would come, me and my brother would come to visit. The minute we walked through the door, take your coat off and stay a while. And those refreshing words of Jesus come to us. You're weary. You're tired. The world's been grinding you down. Remain. This was the conviction of the early church. The early church believed this, that you stay put to get somewhere. That you stay put to get somewhere. That stability and growth is about going deep where you are. Not being spread so thin that we essentially just disappear. But the question for us today is, how do we do this? Where do we find the strength to remain? How do we remain? How do we hold on? And I guess that that's where it brings us back full circle to verse 1. Jesus says, I am the true vine. Now, that may mean very little to us, but this would have sparked something in the disciples' minds, especially if it's true that they're standing next to the temple. What Jesus is doing is he's using Old Testament covenant language. We're all throughout the the Old Covenant, all throughout the Old Testament, God's chosen people, Israel, were referred to as the vine of God. The vine that had been plucked out of slavery and out out of bondage in Egypt and placed within the promised land. And they had been called to remain faithful to God and to spread out and to flourish and bear fruit and be a blessing to the nations. But as you carry on through the the narrative of scripture and we get to the Psalms and we get to the prophets, what we realize is now that they're lamenting over the fact that they are no longer flourishing, the vine It was getting brittle and dry and fruitless. They had failed in their calling. They had failed to to be that life-giving vine to the nations. They had failed to remain faithful to God and to keep covenant. They had essentially failed to abide. And so as a result, they had become wild and desolate and literally torn down. So when Jesus says, he's the true vine, What he's essentially saying is that he is the greater Israel. 
that he is the one who spreads out his vine and brings flourishing to the nations. That Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the fulfillment of all of God's purposes, that he is the true vine, the, the one who is faithful and keeps covenant. In other, words, when, in other words, when Jesus says, I am the true vine, he is saying, I am all that you could never be. Where you fail, I will be faithful. Where there is death in us, I will be your life. Why is this important? Because when he invites us to remain in him, he is not saying, you better hang on tight or else. I think that that's, for many of us, the way we approach faith. I better just hang on or I'm going to slip away and fall away into oblivion or worse, fall into what Jesus warns of here, being disconnected, thrown away and burned. But Jesus is inviting us to rest in his covenant creating and covenant keeping ability. The question for us today is what prevents branches, believers, disciples from becoming the tumbleweed? What prevents us from being thrown away and cast off? And it is nothing else other than the life keeping grip of God's new covenant through union with Jesus Christ. I guess what I'm trying to say is this. It's not the branch that upholds the vine. It's the vine that upholds the branches. It's not us coming here to support Jesus. Jesus, I came to church for you today. Jesus, I'm going to go invite a friend and a neighbor to Easter for you today. We are holding up Jesus. And Jesus says, nope, I'm holding you up. I'm supporting you. My grip is on you. Listen to the words of Fleming Rutledge. There's a fashion today for exhorting us to live into various things. Live into our baptism. Live into our calling. Live into our mission. I think that's a very 21st century humanist, do-it-yourself way of speaking. We don't live into the vine who is the life of the church and of each Christian. The vine lives into us. We live from the vine, from the word of God, from the body and blood of Christ, from the tireless work of the spirit new every morning. It's Christ that supports us. Amen? Remember the timing of Jesus' words here. This is the night before the crucifixion. Hours before Christ will be nailed to a cross. Jesus is talking about a relationship that he is going to initiate and he's going to seal in his own blood in just a matter of hours. The very next day, Jesus, the true vine who lived the most fruitful life imaginable, took the place of the brittle and breakable branches. Jesus offered himself to become the branch that was plucked from the vine. Jesus offered himself to become the branch that was thrown away and cast into the fire. You see, at the center of our abiding, at the very core of our abiding, whenever we think about abiding, we ought to see the crucified and risen Jesus who was cut off so that we could be brought in. 
and who rose on the third day to bring about life within our lives. In those moments, we think to ourselves, man, I am barely hanging on. Maybe you're there today. I just feel like I'm barely hanging on. It's just enough to be here. In those moments where we just feel like we are just like an inch away from just slipping away. Or that our connection to Jesus feels so brittle or so volatile or so vulnerable. Jesus reminds us to rest in his covenant creating and keeping strength. To abide in him. To allow his life and the life of the spirit to live within us. And his words of grace, his words of rest come to us, the church, today and say, hold on because I'm holding on to you. Abide as I abide in you. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the life of Christ, his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, that he is seated on the throne, that he is interceding for us, that he is mediating on our behalf, that he is working all things according to your will for our good. Christ is not some aloof being or some figure in history, God. Thank you that you are with us through your Holy Spirit. Thank you that you have called us into intimacy, God. Maybe for some of us, the idea of intimacy is so foreign for us. Perhaps we imagine you as the tyrant God or the aloof God or the disappointed God. And to think of you as the God of intimacy, Lord, is almost unimaginable. Otherworldly. Beyond our reach. And in a way it is. And yet we thank you, Lord, that Christ has come to us. That you took on flesh and blood and dwelt among us. And that he offers that intimacy to us right now. Lord, it's just on my heart that today would be a day of faith. There are different men and women here, Lord, on different various backgrounds, Lord. Different places in their walk with you. Some reluctant to believe. Some skeptical. Some distant. Some running. Some proud some self-confident. But we thank you that in your grace, your invitation to abide comes to us all. And it is our desire to respond. As the divine dance of the Trinity opens and extends the hand of welcome, we ask that you would empower us by your spirit to enter that dance. Lord, for some of us that are afraid to be vulnerable, the word intimacy brings with it scars and wounds and hurts and fears from the past, Lord. I pray that we would see as you extend that hand to us that the hands of the king are healing hands. That there's safety and refuge in you, God. May we be a people that abide. May we be a people that remain. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.